The following podcast contains explicit content and is not suitable for all listeners. This episode contains explicit content regarding a child and may be uncomfortable for some listeners. According to UNICEF, every seven minutes, somewhere in the world, an adolescent is killed by an act of violence. In 2015 alone, there were 119,000 violent deaths among children and adolescents below the age of 20. Those aged 15 to 19 are particularly vulnerable, being three times more likely to die violently than younger adolescents aged 10 to 14. Most of the victims of child abduction murder are victims of opportunity at around 57%. Only in 14% of cases did the killer choose his victim because of some physical characteristic of the victim. The primary motivation for the child abduction murder is sexual assault. Acquaintances are responsible for 12.6% of child homicides. And according to Statistics Canada, abductions account for less than 1% of all reported missing children. On October 3, 1984, a 9-year-old girl went missing after purchasing bubblegum from a local convenience store. Her body was discovered a few months later and a suspect was arrested. However, 36 years later, on October 15, 2020, it was announced her real killer was finally identified. This is the story of Christine Jessup. Christine Jessup was born on November 29, 1974, to Janet and Robert Jessup. Nicknamed Chrissy by her mother, she had an older brother named Kenneth, who went by Kenny, who was five years older than her. Unfortunately, I found it extremely difficult to find much information about her childhood, how she grew up, or her likes and interests. As her case had many ups and downs, along with police missteps, many of the articles I found focused more on the investigation into her case than her as a person. What I did find was she was described by her family as, quote, a pixie, bubbly, small, and responsible, and that she, quote, loved life, her family, school, and sports. She also loved her bike, and her brother shared how it was her, quote, pride and joy. While she enjoyed playing with dolls, she also liked baseball, like her big brother, and was considered to be a tomboy. He remembered how he taught her to throw and catch a baseball, and how she would sneak into his room to steal his hockey jerseys. Her mother remembers Christine loved animals. She even kept a pet frog and loved her chicken like a dog. Christine grew up in a small town called Queensville in Ontario, Canada, which is about 50 kilometers or 30 miles north of Toronto, which is the most populated city in Canada and the capital of the province of Ontario. In the 2006 census, the town of Queensville had a population of just 632. So it is a very small place where everyone knows everyone. 
It is a part of a larger township called East Gwillimbury, which has a population of about 24,000 as of 2016. Just to give you an idea of the town a bit, and while it does have a main town intersection with a couple of businesses, it is more of a country-type setting with fields, farms, and spaced-out homes. In my research, I realized I've driven through it on my way to Keswick, which is a nearby town, and I didn't even know that I had been there, or I don't remember seeing any signs or anything. I will include a more recent picture from Queensville's Wikipedia page, as well as photos from 1984 on the Instagram page for this podcast, which if you haven't followed yet, is where I put photos of the cases I discuss, and it is at femicide underscore podcast. I'll also have it linked in the show notes. The family home was white with black shutters and appears fairly large in photographs, much like a farmhouse type structure. And it appears to have two additions on the back, which in another photograph look to be two garages. Again, these photos will be available on my Instagram page. The home is located directly on Leslie Street, which is a main street and considered a two-lane highway in that area. The home itself was set back from the road and had a few neighbors beside it. In the photo, it shows two homes to the right of the house that are closer to the street with fencing around their backyards and a third neighbor's house further to the right with his property line divided by trees. Behind the first two neighbors appears to be a structure of some sort with a slanted roof, but I'm not sure what it is. It could be property of the local cemetery, which is in behind the Jessup home. The Jessup family property appears to be quite long, but relatively narrow. I'm not sure exactly of the size, but if someone had taken her from the house that day, the fencing and placement of the neighbor's properties would likely obstruct any view they would have had, and people driving by would have had limited view as well due to the trees by the road. The photos I have of the home are in winter, but remember Christine was taken on October 3rd, and while it is autumn and the leaves are changing color, it's still early enough in Ontario to have plenty of leaves still on the trees. It was unclear if neighbors were even home at the time of her disappearance, though, or if anyone came forward stating they drove by the home at around 4 p.m. I assume no one was around or at least didn't see anything or there would have been information regarding that in my research. Since Queenville was such a small town, and again, everyone knew everyone, it felt like a very safe place. So much so that Christine's parents didn't worry about her coming home on her own, although she did take the school bus home. And I assume that she would most likely have been dropped off at or very close to her home, making it even more safe. But I know when I was nine, I walked home from school, which was about a 15 or so minute walk. So back then, it was very common to have your child just go home on their own. And by the way, I was actually born in October of 1984, just a side note. So my experience was a bit later on, but not that far of a time period from this story. 
She was told by her mother, though, that she was to go directly home, and if no one was around, she was to wait with her family dog, Freckles, until someone came home. On the day of her disappearance, Christine defied her mother and jumped off the school bus early to go buy a piece of gum, nickel gum as her brother called it, from the local convenience store before heading home. This was noted at about 3.20 p.m. or 3.50 p.m. Obviously, there is some debate on this timing, which, on a side note, I don't completely understand, unless something happened on the bus route, like the bus breaking down or something like that. School buses generally stick to a strict schedule. For instance, my sister took a bus to school and was picked up and dropped off at the exact same time every day, like clockwork. I'd understand a discrepancy of a few minutes or even 10 minutes, but not 30 minutes. Now, the store clerk remembers her coming in and reports state that he said it was around 4 p.m., but whether it was before heading home or if she had gone home first and then went back out is up for debate. And unfortunately, a lot of, quote, facts in this case are based on people's memories, including friends of Christine, who, of course, were children themselves at the time. It does make more sense, though, for her to be off the bus at around 3.50, just due to the timing of the other events. She had apparently made plans to meet her friend Leslie Chipman at around 4 p.m., who said they were supposed to meet and play with their Cabbage Patch dolls in the park, but Christine never showed up. Her brother doesn't fully believe this account, but I couldn't find exactly why that was. A man by the name of Robert Atkinson says that he saw Christine standing outside of the convenience store with her recorder talking to an older boy, but again, this isn't confirmed. And just to clarify, by recorder, I'm referencing the flute-type musical instrument that you are given in schools around that age, or at least I was as well. What is confirmed is that Christine, at some point, did enter the family home after getting the mail from the mailbox by the road. Her mother and brother came back around 4.10 p.m., to find Christine's bike laying on the driveway, carelessly thrown, which didn't immediately worry her family, but later her brother said it did worry him since her bike was so precious to her. Inside, her coat was hanging up, the mail and her school bag were on the kitchen counter, and the family dog was all alone. Her coat was placed on a hook too high for her to reach, which I will discuss later on, but I wanted to mention quickly now. When the sun began to set and Christine still hadn't returned, her mother called the police, and within a few hours, hundreds of people from all over East Gwillimbury Township were out looking for Christine. Recalling the day's events, her mother stated, quote, I knew something wasn't right then. About an hour and a half after we got home, I thought, this isn't right. She'd be maybe hiding somewhere, playing a game, something like that. I got a little concerned then, when you can't find her anywhere, in the park, along the street, you know there's something wrong, end quote. The corner store was 0.71 kilometers, or 
1.44 miles from the family home. And the park was across the street from the store, according to a report I found. Which means the timeline of her going home, then going to the store, seems off. Just because that would mean the killer abducted her between the corner store and the park, if she was on her way there, as it was stated. It makes more sense she was abducted at her home, since her bike was outside. But it doesn't rule out she went home, went to the store, and then came back home, either because she wasn't going to the park at all, or maybe she wanted to wait to tell her mom, or maybe she just forgot her doll. I've seen a lot of theories on this on website sleuth sites, but I personally believe she was more likely abducted from her home. I'll reference this a bit later on, and the recent theory her brother now believes is what happened to her on that fateful day. Initially, the police weren't sure if she had gotten lost or wandered off or if something had happened to her. The police search continued for multiple days, but as no sign of her could be found, police began to expect foul play had in fact occurred, and an investigation into her disappearance was launched. The next part is hard to describe. On December 31st, 1984, some people were walking along a tractor path in a field in Sunderland, which is in the region of Durham, and is about 56 kilometers or 35 miles from the Jessup home. They spotted something just off the path and upon closer inspection realized it was a body and called the police immediately. As Christine's disappearance was so well known at the time, the citizens who found her body knew it was that of a child, and most likely, Christine's. Her body was severely decomposed when it was discovered, and her turtleneck, pullover sweater, and blouse were pulled up over her head. She was on her back with her knees open in an unnatural angle, and her underwear, blue corduroy pants, and Nike running shoes were at her feet. She had been stabbed to death multiple times in the chest which was determined to be her cause of death. She was partially clothed and semen was found on her underwear, which led investigators to assume she had been sexually assaulted, although her body was too decomposed to be certain. Her recorder from school was beside her and still had her name taped to it. Finding her deceased was a shock, obviously to her family, but to the whole community and surrounding area as well, who had been following the case helping in the search, and praying for her safe return. Christine's body was buried in the cemetery behind her family home. In addition to the semen found at the scene, at least one cigarette butt was found as well. There are reports that two to three cigarette butts were found, a lighter, and a cigarette pack, but only the one cigarette butt was eventually put into evidence. An officer at the scene was initially thought to be the person who left behind the cigarette butt. However, it was later determined not to be the same brand as the officer's and that it was found prior to the officer's arrival on scene and therefore was most likely from the killer. A single dark hair was also found on her necklace and this was referred to as the necklace hair. It was determined that this hair did not belong to Christine and as it was embedded into tissue on the necklace, it too must have come from the killer. 
There were also fibers on her clothing and recorder that were also presumed to have been from her killer's clothing. There was extreme pressure from the public to find Christine's killer, but initially the police had no real suspects or leads. Until February 14, 1985, when Janet Jessup mentioned her neighbor, Guy Paul Morin, to police and stated he was a, quote, weird type guy. Guy Paul Morin was 25 years old when Christine went missing and lived with his parents next door to the Jessup family. He had a sister, but it was not clear if she lived with the family when the events occurred. The family was considered recluse by the community and were described as combative, odd, eccentric, and viewed as the black sheep of the area. Their property was littered with junk and materials for their ongoing home renovations. Guy was working as a finishing sander at a furniture company at the time and stated he arrived home from work that day at around 4.30 p.m. He loved beekeeping and playing the clarinet and was in a community band, which I assume would be an orchestra type of band. It was on his way to the band practice on April 22, 1985, that he was arrested on first-degree murder charges. He was denied bail and spent the next 10 months in jail awaiting his trial. The investigation was wrought with issues from the start. Firstly, the crime scene was not preserved or searched properly. Besides the cigarette butt discrepancies I mentioned, the site itself was not grid-searched as it should have been. A severe snowstorm was predicted that evening, and a detective suggested the site be covered so that a formal search could be conducted the following day. It was already 2.10 p.m. by the time the lead investigator arrived on scene, and in the winter months in Ontario, it is dark by about 4.30 p.m. The detective's advice was not taken, and the police simply searched the area on their hands and knees and did not finish before darkness fell. I can understand if police were not familiar with proper protocols, given the small community and lack of crime in the area, but being so close to a major city, I can't see why they didn't call in help if needed, or at the very least cover the area to ensure they could search it again the following day. Which brings me to the next issue in the investigation, egos. Originally, York Region had the case, but after the body was found in Durham Region, the case moved to that jurisdiction. This led to some jealousy between the departments and caused some information to be mishandled and miscommunicated. The police also became too close to the Jessup family and would spend time at their home discussing the case. The police apparently did not know that that could tamper with their case and the family's memories of the day, but others say the police used these chats to their advantage to persuade the family to change the timing of the events on the day of Christine's disappearance. It was also discovered the lead investigator, Sergeant Michalowski, had two notebooks concerning the case and each had varying testimony and evidence recorded, meaning he basically had one notebook with the real facts and one that implicated Guy in the crimes. In fact, in 1990, Sergeant Michalowski was actually charged with perjury after this was discovered.
Going back to the cigarette butt for a moment, that was an important piece of evidence for the defense of Guy because he was not a smoker. The police discrepancies and claims of it belonging to an officer were meant to implicate Guy. If they had admitted that it was the killer's cigarette butt, they couldn't have also said it was Guy's who wasn't a smoker. The biggest flaw in the police's case against Guy was that they never considered other suspects. Once he was viewed as a suspect, the police got tunnel vision and did everything they could to build the case against him, going as far as persuading the Jessup family that they came home later than they originally said in order to prove that Guy had the opportunity to take Christine. Guy had stated that he was home around 4.30 that day after stopping at a store on his way home. The police timed the drive from his work to his home, which was 57.1 kilometers or 35.4 miles, and it took 42 minutes to complete, not including if he stopped anywhere. His time card at work showed he clocked out at 3.32 p.m meaning he would have been home at the very earliest at 4.14 p.m. Therefore, he could not have been home before the Jessup family arrived at 4.10 p.m. However, after police involved themselves into the Jessup testimony, they changed their memory and claimed to have arrived home at 4.35 p.m. instead. This change was crucial as it now gave Guy enough time to have abducted Christine. His family was adamant that he was home for dinner at 5.30pm that day, and while he could not have driven to the field in Durham, committed the crime, and returned back by 5.30pm, he was still viewed as the prime suspect. Part of the reason the police were set on Guy as the culprit, besides the community's perceptions of him, was an interview they conducted with him on February 22, 1985, outside his home. The officers secretly recorded Guy, but the 90-minute tape was only 45 minutes on each side, so they missed a part of the conversation in the recording. During the interview, the officers stated that Guy had said some things that were odd, including, quote, Otherwise, I'm innocent, which was said after a pause in a discussion about his work. All little girls are sweet and innocent, but grow up to be corrupt which was said during a conversation about Christine. She was found across the Ravenshoe Road. Neither officer was familiar with Ravenshoe Road, although it is a paved east-west route north of Queensville known to local residents as such. That entire section was quoted from a report from the Ministry of the Attorney General, which of course will be linked in the show notes of this episode, as are all the sources I used in my research. In every episode I make, the sources will always be listed if you are interested in reading more about any cases I discuss. The officers interpreted Guy's responses to be suggestive of him having impulses towards little girls and that he was implying guilt and that he knew where her remains were located. Again, the officers formed their perceptions around his assumption of guilt. He also stated he was home around 4.30 p.m., 
but then in an unrecorded portion claimed he was home between 4.30 and 5 p.m., which made the officers even more suspicious. I find that last part quite interesting that the officers interpreted it to be an implication of guilt, that he knew a road that they didn't know just because they weren't familiar with it. I find that very, very strange. Guy had also not attended Christine's funeral, nor did he help in her search, which to the police and community showed his guilt. To this point, I want to say that while I know it was a different time and profiling of killers was not as it is today, the fact that he did not insert himself into her search and investigation more so shows his innocence, as we now know killers routinely speak to the family of the victims, join search parties, or find evidence in order to put themselves into the investigation. Of course, this isn't always the case, but it does often happen. In fact, in this case, the real killer did actually assist in the search for Christine and attended her funeral. I'd like to take this moment to thank you for listening to my podcast. The concept behind femicide is very close to my heart, and I hope through these stories we can shed a light on the abuse, violence, and sexual assault that women face daily. Please subscribe to my podcast and leave a review, as it really helps to bring awareness to these stories. Guy's first trial began on January 7, 1986, and took place in London, Ontario, Canada, which is 234 kilometers or 145 miles from Queensville, or about 2 hours and 14 minutes. In this instance, even Toronto was too close to give Guy a fair trial, and they needed to hold it further away to try and find jurors who were not biased. During the trial, the prosecutors argued Guy was obsessed with his neighbor and used his, quote, odd behavior to show he was capable of committing the crime. The hair and fibers found on Christine's body were linked by apparent experts, as was the finding of microscopic blood in Guy's car. This is a complicated process to explain, but essentially the matching fibers were found to be inconclusive and it could not be proven to be a direct match. The fibers were contaminated early on and thousands of fibers were taken as sample from Guy's vehicle, as well as Christine's body, and due to the contamination it cannot be determined that the fibers were the result of direct transfer by the killer and many other scenarios could have influenced the findings. They also found the phrasing used at trial, such as, quote, consistent with, or match for, was misleading and could sway the jury if not properly explained. The hair found was said to be microscopically similar to Guy's hair. The problem is that hair comparison is not an absolute science to determine 100% guilt of a single person. Three of Christine's classmates were also tested, and their samples were found to be microscopically similar to the hair found on Christine as well. The prosecutors also argued there was microscopic, quote, indications of blood found in Guy's car, but this again was proven to be insufficient to be used as concrete evidence. 
The samples found were not even proven to be human blood, let alone Christine's blood. In fact, they couldn't even determine there was blood in the vehicle, as the tests were too preliminary. The expert did express the limitations in their findings, but this was still brought up at trial by the prosecutors. The prosecutors also brought in two informants who were in jail with Gee, who claimed to have witnessed his confession. The first informant, Robert Dean May, was Gee's cellmate, and the second, whose name is not published, apparently overheard the confession from the next cell. These testimonies were later refuted, and it was determined the inmates were desperate to get out of prison and would have done anything to get special treatment and leniencies. Additionally, Robert Dean May was found to be a pathological liar with sociopathic tendencies. He was then convicted of another sexual assault shortly after the first of Guy's trials, and after some back and forth about Guy's confession, he was deemed to be a liar and his testimony recanted. At Guy's second trial, Robert's testimony of the confession was still used as evidence, but the defense argued his motives and psychological issues. Unfortunately, the prosecutors made an offer to the informants that was then used to showcase their apparent motivation not to lie. The prosecutors gave the informants the opportunity to not testify in the second trial, to which they said they would testify. The issue with this offer is that the prosecutor expressed in his opening statement that the informants would be testifying, and what they were testifying about. So had they chosen not to testify, there could have been a mistrial. The prosecutor also claimed he only made the offer after learning of the informant's mistreatment following the first trial, and it was not a calculated attempt to place the informants in a positive light. But the commissioner, who reviewed Guy's trials, disagreed. Finally, the defense was not disclosed this information prior to it coming up at trial, and therefore was not adequately prepared to argue against it. The final argument the defense made during the first trial that I want to discuss was the reasoning that if Guy had killed Christine, then it must have been by reason of insanity. He was denied to use it as an actual defense by the judge, but brought it in as a hypothetical and questioned two expert psychologists who had administered tests to Guy. The psychologist concluded that Guy was schizophrenic and was diagnosed as moderately severe and it was determined to be an advanced state. While his illness was used to create doubt and alternative theories during trial, I find it to be very telling of why people in the community considered him to be odd and eccentric. Schizophrenia is, quote, a major mental illness characterized by a thinking disorder that affected the way he communicated with others, end quote. I'm saddened that his mental illness and its effects were used against him to essentially railroad him into being labeled a child murderer. After less than a day, the jury returned a not guilty verdict on February 7th, 1986. This verdict outraged the Jessup family, 
the community, the police, and was widely viewed as an error in the media. The defense's psychological defense was used against Guy and was viewed as proof that he committed the crime. The prosecutors then filed an appeal, which was granted by the Supreme Court on June 5, 1987. The second trial began on May 28, 1990. Guy had a new team of lawyers for this trial, and they spent months petitioning for previously unseen documents, findings, and police reports. They also brought up several suspects that were not properly investigated by the police and used the police's tunnel vision of Guy as a defense. This trial consisted of nine months of testimony and ten months of legal motions and delays, when finally, on July 30, 1992, the jury returned a verdict and found Guy guilty of first-degree murder. He was sentenced to life in prison. Of course, the defense appealed the jury's verdict, and strangely, on February 9, 1993, Guy was released on bail pending his appeal. This was a very uncommon occurrence and was brought about by the unfairness of his trial, which was highlighted by the very same media that was upset by his earlier acquittal. His story was investigated and aired on television by a CBC Channel program called The Fifth Estate, and a book about the case was released, both of which expressed doubts about his conviction. The defense pushed for DNA evidence on Christine's underwear to be tested. This took three attempts as it was still a relatively new process and the technology wasn't used in criminal proceedings until 1986. Finally, the DNA was tested by a lab in Boston using advanced technology and on January 23, 1995, it was proven that Guy Paul Morin was not a genetic match to the semen found, proving that he was not the killer. The report I have referenced in my research was the result of Guy being found not guilty and the subsequent investigation into his trial. A retired Quebec Court of Appeals judge named Fred Kaufman wrote the report and another retired Quebec judge named Alan Gold negotiated compensation for the Marin family. $1.25 million was paid for the 10 years Guy Marin fought for his innocence. His was the second major wrongful conviction case in Canada. There is so much more to this case, but I'd be talking forever if I went into every little detail. The report itself is 1,300 pages, and I've only read and linked the summary, and that was still overwhelming. What is clear is that Guy Paul Morin was failed by the judicial system. Guy has since found steady employment and married a woman who was part of a support team that advocated for his innocence. They now have two children. One suspect I now want to mention and that was brought up during the second trial was Christine's own brother. Quote, Christine's brother Kenneth had informed police at one point that when Christine was seven years old, 
he and two of his friends had induced her into having sex with them on several occasions, end quote. What I find weird is that while many considered him a likely suspect, and this was brought up at trial, this revelation is hardly discussed in any articles I found. I'm not sure if this was disproven or if her brother Kenny received psychological counseling for this confession, but I find this very disturbing. Obviously, he was out with his mother at the time and could not have been her killer, but it does not absolve him of his guilt in regards to his involvement in these sickening acts. I'd also like to point out that a seven-year-old child cannot be, quote, induced into having sex, end quote. This is predatory behavior on the part of her brother and his friends and should be viewed as rape. I understand at 12 years of age, they are also children themselves, but their knowledge of sex would have been more than that of Christine's, as well as their understanding of right and wrong. This revelation reminded me of the Duggars, a popular family from a reality show, which in 2015 it was revealed the oldest son had sexually assaulted his own sisters when he was a teenager. His family at the time put him into counseling with their church, and police were notified on numerous occasions, but no charges were ever filed. Kenny's confession is disturbing, and his vocal media presence explaining his love for his sister and the hole in their family feels strange once you learn of his behavior. Approximately 30% of children who are sexually abused are abused by family members. The younger the victim, the more likely it is that the abuser is a family member. The final inconsistency I came across in my research and that I want to discuss was the whereabouts of Janet and Kenny Jessup on October 3rd, 1984. They stated in early reports that they had been at the dentist and arrived home at 4.10 p.m. The dentist was apparently questioned and stated the Jessups left at 4.20 p.m., making it impossible for them to have gotten home before 4.35 p.m. This inconsistency led to the issues surrounding the timeline for Christine's abduction and the subsequent police interference in the Jessup's testimony that I previously discussed. It wasn't until later that it was publicly revealed that Janet and Kenny had actually gone to visit Bob Jessup in prison that day. This is extremely pertinent information as it was later determined the real killer possibly knew these details and used his knowledge to abduct Christine. I'm sure the police knew of Bob's whereabouts and that the family had enough going on without public scrutiny of their family's legal troubles, but I found this interesting and wanted to address it. Kenny now states that they went to the prison, then to Sears to get a watch, and then to the dentist before returning home. So, who killed Christine Jessup, if not Guy Palmerin? On October 15, 2020, the real killer was finally revealed, thanks to DNA advancements. The use of genetic genealogy tracing was used, which, quote, combines DNA analysis with genealogical research 
by matching a sample to a database of DNA to determine a familial relationship and identify a likely suspect, end quote. Although researchers can use sites like AncestryDNA or 23andMe to find familial links, the forensic genetic genealogist Anthony Redgrave, who worked on this case, stated his process was different. Quote, you have to go through a specialized lab, use whole genome sequencing, which is the entire genetic sequence, and not just the parts you want to compare on the database, so that we get a more complete picture, end quote. Genetic tracing was most notably used to find the infamous Golden State Killer in 2018. It was determined the killer of Christine Jessup was a man by the name of Calvin Hoover, who was actually a family friend of the Jessups. Calvin's wife, Heather, worked with Bob at Eastern Independent Telecom prior to his arrest for mismanagement of funds, and the Hoover children played with Kenny and Christine. On the morning of Christine's disappearance, Janet spoke to Heather on the phone, and during that call, it was mentioned that Christine would not be going with the family to the prison to visit Bob, as she was too young, which gave Calvin the information he needed to successfully abduct her. Unfortunately, Calvin Hoover committed suicide in 2015 and cannot be tried for his crime. Although Toronto Police Chief did announce, quote, If he were alive today, the Toronto Police Service would arrest Calvin Hooper for the murder of Christine Jessup, end quote. According to Kenny Jessup, the police told him that Calvin Hoover was questioned in 2015 prior to his suicide, which highlights his guilt. However, the Toronto Police Department released a statement stating, Calvin Hoover was never questioned in 2015 and that that statement is false. Both Janet and Kenny didn't immediately remember who Calvin Hoover was, but after remembering his wife, they realized who he was and his relationship to the family, including the fact that he had helped search for Christine, attended her wake and her funeral. Guy Paul Marin released an official statement through his lawyer stating, quote, I am grateful that the Toronto police stayed on the case and have now finally solved it. When DNA exonerated me in January 1995, I was sure that one day DNA would reveal the real killer, and now it has. I am relieved for Christine's mother, Janet, and her family, and hope this will give them some peace of mind. End quote. So what happened the day Christine disappeared? Kenny Jessup has a theory, quote, it comes together, it all fits, end quote. He thinks that Christine came home to find Calvin Hoover and that he used the guise of taking her to see her dad to gain her trust and take her from the family home. He references her coat being on a hook too high for her to reach, which I spoke of earlier in the story, and that Calvin could have hung it up for her. He also thinks that she would have ran back inside for her recorder before leaving with Calvin Hoover. Kenny believes that when his mother called Heather Hoover that morning, Christine was upset about not getting to go to see her dad, and that Janet expressed that to Heather and that that was passed to Calvin, quote, off the cuff. 
He doesn't believe Heather was aware of her husband's intentions. The Hoovers moved away following Christine's murder, although I am not sure exactly when they moved. I personally think Christine hopped off the bus early and went to the convenience store to get the gum before walking home with her recorder in hand. She picked up the mail at the end of her driveway and then went home. I think Calvin Hoover waited nearby to see her come home alone and then went to pick her up. I don't know about the jacket, but my guess is she maybe dropped it on the floor when she got in and he simply put it back up on the hook. Because I can't see him helping her to take off her coat and then take her back outside without the coat right away unless it was abnormally warm that day. I agree Christine would have run back in to get her new recorder to show her dad, or it was still in her hand when he arrived and she was playing with it. A strange occurrence happened the night of Christine's wake, and a man was heard screaming, quote, Help, help, please God, help me, end quote. During the trial, the prosecution used this incident to implicate Marin, but as the Hoovers were also neighbors to the Jessops, Janet now believes it could have been Calvin's screams. It was unclear how close the Hoovers lived to the Jessops, but I assume close enough for her to believe they could have been his screams. This case is so tragic and sad, not only because of the young life taken in such a horrific way, but also due to the lives forever altered by the inadequacies in the police investigation. Heather Hoover reached out to media following the news and stated, quote, We are all devastated by the announcement made this week. Our hearts go out to the Jessup family. We ask for privacy at this time while we all come to terms with this horrendous news that was as shocking to us as it was to the Jessup family. This will be our only statement for the time being. End quote. It is mentioned that Heather and Calvin had been divorced for a long time prior to the announcement. It is unclear if Calvin had remarried or if he remained single before his suicide. It is incredible that the true killer has been identified, but you have to wonder if he could have been identified sooner had the police not focused solely on Guy Palmerin. Janet Jessup commented recently after being notified her daughter's killer was discovered, quote, I've been praying for an answer since it happened. Those prayers have been answered. She continued, it's over and done. It's complete. It's come full circle. You're relaxed. It's the end. You get on with life now, end quote. Sadly, in this instance, as one family begins to find peace, Another family's pain is only just beginning. Thank you for listening to the story of Christine Jessup. I am your host, Sean Marie. Join me next time for a new story.